0: Pie today? Yes, yes, yeah, I won! woo So that's a yes on the apple pie? I just went
1: big time playing High Five Casino on my phone! Real cash prizes, free daily rewards, over 1,200 games, yeah. So
0: yes or no on the apple pie? Woo! Ha ha! I won again! I'll take that as a yes. Drive around. Have you had your High Five moment today? Only at HighFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited. Play responsibly. Conditions apply. See website for details. High Five,
1: high five casino. casino.
0: When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. Hi, I'm Buzz Knight, and this is the Take A Walk podcast, where we take you on an audio journey with a variety of really cool folks, all with a story to tell, a story about music, a story about the artist, the backstory. On this episode, I go back to the glorious radio days in Boston, which I was part of and certainly observed. We have a talent who dominated the air in Boston, also in New York, And across the country, in his time on Sirius XM, we go over to Central Park to take a walk next with Nick Carter. Well, Nick Carter, it is so great to be actually taking a walk in person with you in Central Park, New York City. Hey, it's
1: great to be with you, man. And uh, as I say, I'm hoping I'm the first one to take the show title literally, because I brought... uh, my youthful ward peppermint p dot mint the mint my dog as she's known on the the mean streets of up the upper west side she's already uh, blessed the place with the poop so uh you know so far so good i love it
0: <laughs> i love it you are the first person that has uh, brought uh, the pooch along to take a walk <laughs> although i did an episode of taking a walk with my two knucklehead dogs in carlisle massachusetts wow so. that's beautiful yeah I, i'm a big i'm a big uh,
1: believer in the sight gag <laughs> It's called taking a walk, so. I
0: love it. And I'm sitting in the subway. I'm going, he's going to think I'm the biggest doofus there. <laughs> no way. No way. I'm the guy that did it with my two dogs. I'm the doofus. Well, she's got six
1: people who listen to it. She's but. got kind of a... Um, it's funny because she's got kind of a tragic story. I mean, I basically, my Instagram is basically pictures of me and Pastor Prime, Pastor Sell By celebrities, and Peppermint. And Peppermint, you know, just whatever you know running around doing her thing to videos like my favorite vet uh, says a small dog she's like you got to be careful with these lowriders so she's running around chasing another small dog to a war lowrider and you know literally that, that video got more pictures more likes than a picture of me and robert plant and everybody's like peppermint should have her own instagram i'm like no so she has more followers than me hard pass but She had a really, um, it's interesting. Oh, what what were you doing? She had a really tough life. She was abandoned on the streets of the Bronx at two months old, which blows my mind. I mean, I just, how much would it have taken just to drop her off at a vet or or a shelter? And her mom, well, my dog, who's a Havanese, passed away two months, actually this, this month, two years ago, two months before she turned 16. And her human mom... Uh, passed away two months after that. Oh man. And so I kind of inherited I mean, her. I mean, she was living with me. She'd been living with me for a couple of years. And Bianca, her mom, passed away at only 43. And all her friends are like, Well, you're keeping peppermint, right? I'm like, No, I thought I'd put her on eBay. What? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really? Yeah. So, but that's the story of uh, peppermint, or right? the the mint, as she's known on the mean streets
0: of the Upper West Side. Well, I'm so honored to meet uh, the mint, and I'm glad to, to see you. I haven't seen you in a while. I think the last time I saw you was at a big event that was uh, involved when you were right doing the uh, the national right the national show on right. tap.
1: Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah on tap with Nick Carter. Yeah, which you know. Some of the best three years of my life, you know, I, I got yelled at by Peter Frampton, I got, uh, I got called names by George Thurgood, it was great. <laughs> I used to have longer hair then, I used to joke, VH1 Classic has hired a spiky-haired black guy to play classic rock to a bunch of red stage, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> I remember like my commercial, thank God, VH1 Classic had next to no ads. So it was either my promo, me, or the Slap Chop guy. And Slash came in. I I mean, I talked to him a couple of times. And he's, well, I'm one of those people that people know my name and know my face, but don't put them together, I think. And so um, he had come in to do an interview, and he walks in the studio, and he goes, Oh, it's you. I see you every time I'm on the treadmill. (laughs) How rock and roll. (laughs) And I'm just trying to imagine Slash on the treadmill with a dopey top hat on. (laughs) But yeah, that was um, that was a great experience because I, I had um, I had sort of fancied myself you know like Johnny Alt rock guy. and you know, I always kind of I, I had a tacit respect for classic rock because that's the sort of building blocks of everything that I listened to. But I my perception at that time, this is 2011, 2012, my perception was that um, I you know, even though I was out of the demographic, as they like to say. I was like, oh, that's that's the old guy. That's the old guy format. So it was funny because when artists would come in, me, A, being a person of color, and B, being, you know, we're looking with this dopey baby face. I used to say to my boss, it's hilarious. They come in, and they're polite, but I think at first they're a little thrown off. Like, they're not, they're figuring, this guy has no idea who I am, you know? He's this guy what 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 did this guy take a break from his rap show to talk to me? <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and 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 they were shocked to find that not only did I know their music inside and out, I knew their stories and they just it was really weird. And my boss actually said to me, he's like, you know, we we could kinda use that. And I'm like, you know, I get where you're coming from. I'm not sure that's legal for you to say, but alright, cool. <laughs>
0: So where did you first realize that uh, radio was in your blood? Um, well, I grew up in Massachusetts. I grew
1: up in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, I was a ham myself. I, I'm i sorry. Please don't trip anybody. <laughs> um, I started my career, quote unquote, I don't even know how old I was. I, I did, um, I guess, seventh grade, I did a show for... NPR called The Spider's Web, where I was like a youth reporter. But I was always a music nerd. I can remember the first 45 I bought, the first album I bought, and I just was fascinated by DJs. And I grew up listening to everybody from the great Sonny Joe White to JoJo, Cook, and Kincaid, these top 40 monsters, to Mark Parento on WBCN, who I just thought was. A God and then as I got older and I got in the business I Kind of got tagged with the Howard Stern shock jock thing which bothered me because My goal and that's what I kind of I feel like that I'll always be indebted to Sirius XM my goal was to be like guys like Tom Snyder Larry King Tavis smiley who could literally talk to anyone like I mean I remember as a little boy watching the clash Right, the clash on the Tom Snyder show, like one o'clock in the morning, and the next day he's talking to like Moshe Diane. you know, right. <laughs> and I was like, how does that happen? Yeah, you know, and um, but I, just the idea of I was a frustrated musician too, as are many radio personalities, and the idea that you know you could hear your voice over the music and and it was sort of musical. It just, it just, I don't know, it was just something about it that just really, really turned me on and then you know the idea that you could connect and oh, i was gonna say be funny or at least attempt to be funny on the air um it was just it was just it was just a great thing for me and i, and I also you know as i say, i started in, in in um uh public radio and then when i was in seventh grade i got my first tv show on um channel four wbz in boston and it was just it was uh Everybody's like, oh, I gotta see tapes. No, 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 they're in the, uh, the vault with the Bruder film and uh, the <laughs> porno from Hitler's bunker because I was, I was an overweight kid. I had a huge space in my teeth. I had big, thick Coke bottle glasses, a huge Afro. You know, it was like, that. that I mean, it was like the Death Star. It, it, it rivaled everybody from Jeff Wynn and Don Henley to Angela Davis. And I look back now and I'm like, how did my
0: parents let me go on TV like
1: that? So, what was the name of that show? It was called Changing Places, where they took a bunch of kids and dropped them into um, uh, the news anchors' positions. And I cho- changed places with Jimmy Myers and did a sports cast, although I knew very little about sports. And then they liked me, and I got another show. It was called The City Show, then they changed the name to Get Off Your Block, where I literally walked around um, in the summer and showed kids, you know, hey, go to the Science Museum. It's open and it's not that expensive. And I got, I actually got an Emmy. I didn't get it, but my producer did. My first voiceover, this woman named Susan Bell, borrowed me and she wanted me to voice a couple of promos, like public service announcement. And the first one was they're wheeling this picture of this this really sickly looking little white kid. I think he had red hair. And um, they're wheeling him down the hall in this gurney. And this kid, I mean, it's like so 80s. He's like, you know, I was really, really sick. And then this really cool lady came up to me and helped me. And I thought she was a nurse. Turns out she was the doctor. Turns out you don't have to be a man to be a good doctor. You just have to be a good doctor. You know, and the key was like, it's being good at what you do that counts. It gets like gender, you know, whatever. And it won uh, an Emmy. I didn't get it. I mean, it's at her her house. And the funny thing is, the first woman who put me on TV, this woman, Gail Levine, she came to New York and she became a giant um, casting director. She cast, um, uh... The cruise movie, um, Jerry Maguire. Oh, wow. And I looked her up, and I called her, and I was like, hi, it's Nick Carter. She's like, from childhood? I was like, yeah. I gotta call you back. Click, and that was the last I ever heard from her. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I gotta call you back. <laughs> exactly. I was like, it's so Hollywood. So this is all before your first radio gig. Yes, sir. Essentially.
1: Yeah. Um, my first actual gig, quote-unquote, being a DJ, was in school nyu wnyu um, i studied theater there i almost i literally almost got thrown out of the theater department because i would blow off class so much to go hang out at the radio station and i did um a couple of shows again it was the 80s so i did a club show called club 89 where we broke records like underground records that were being played that are now like club classics um i did a show. I inherited um, the disco show, Disco 89, which was literally a classic disco show from my friend Don Milano, who's now a big um, sales guy. I know him. Yeah. Well, he was like, he created it. And the funny thing is, you know, WNYU, since, you know, I lived on campus in the village, the uh, the, the uh, transmitter's in the Bronx. So people on campus couldn't get the station. <laughs> you know, so basically you were broadcasting to people who were just listening, you know, in New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, you know, um, Westchester County, and a lot in Brooklyn. And this this disco show was unbelievably popular. The phones would start ru- start ringing at like 8.30 on Wednesday. The show was on from 9 to 11, and they wouldn't stop ringing until like midnight. So I played disco. <laughs> wow. And I, I channeled my inner Sonny Joe White and screamed over, you know, Dan Hartman instant replay or whatever. <laughs> And um, I eventually got fired from my college radio station, and uh, I moved back to Boston because um, I was broke, and NYU, excuse me, New York was so expensive then. I mean, not like now, but, and I started working part-time at WFNX in Boston. Um, I'd been turned down by, I think, two different program directors and the consultant, and then, Max Tolkoff, who was the first guy to put me on the air, uh, he brought me in. I remember he said, he said, you know, the rest of these DJs need some of what you have, and you need to have some of what they have, because they were, I had to throw this poop away, they were all really, really mellow and laid back, and I was all hyper, and i was so excited to hear my voiceover, the fresh mood in the middle of the night. And it was just, <laughs> all my calls were hilarious. I remember my first night, I was like, you know, 1017 FNX, Boston's is alter- blah, 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 I picked up the phone, hi FNX, what do you want, KISS? <laughs> or, or, oh boy. Which was the big top 40. Yeah. Or, you know, I remember this one woman was just like, dude, what are you doing? So I kind of mellowed out. And then um, WBCN had offered me part-time a couple of times where I literally would have made more money two days a week on WBCN than I was making six nights a week on uh, WFNX in the middle of the night. And I said, no. Um, and the legendary Oedipus, who was the program director, walked around for years, because they kept on getting back to me. No, 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 no. Nick Carter said no to me. Yeah, my part-timers make more than their are full-timers. No, 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 no. What the hell's wrong with that guy? Like he sought out anybody he knew who knew me. It's a good invitation. Nah, 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 nah. <laughs> 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 He's like a second father to me. <laughs> so then I, 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 So then I left, finally, and I went to do mornings in Providence, Rhode Island, and I was there for six months, and he called me.
0: Nip.
1: I think you're ready. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, this ought to be fascinating. <laughs> uh, okay. You're ready be on WBCN in Boston and I was like all right but you know I, I told these guys I'd be here a year He's like think about your future Click. And, <laughs> and thank God my my program director Brent Peterson said to me he was like listen you can go in there and you can you can change that station you know because I didn't have a contract I just gave him my word I'd be there six months and he said to me I do the meat test on this he's from Chicago and he said if Q101 or whatever the big station at the time called me he said I'd be so out of here it's like you got to go and I said well I appreciate that but you know I give you my word I'm going to stay and he said okay well you can stay but if you stay I'm going to fire you oh wow yeah it was it was so selfless so I went back to Boston in 1996 and uh, therapy and antidepressants were soon to follow
0: <laughs> yeah. That was quite a run, right?
1: You know, it was um, eight years. It felt like twice that because it it was just, it was insane. It was, I mean, I look back now and we were in the middle of this unbelievably nasty rock battle and it's hilarious to me because, I mean, not to be political, but I see a correlation between a lot of the MAGA stuff because... It was almost cult-like, you know, this, this one radio station we competed with, WAAF, I mean, they tapped into something a vain, where literally these kids who, they thought it was a crusade to kind of go out and represent for this radio station that played a good 80% of the same stuff we did, you know? I mean, and that other 20% was the secret sauce. They were very heavy, and we were, you know, by comparison, kind of dorky. You know in corporate but they you know it, it, it was it was insane i mean I, I remember my dad was in the hospital he had, had um cancer when i i was hired to do night 7 p.m to 11 p.m at wbcn for three years and i figured that was it not no i mean i was so naive i didn't know that i was being groomed for afternoon drive then everybody else knew it but me and i was just like oh well, you know I could afford to move out of mom's house now. (laughs) I could also get a car. (laughs) You know, um, because when I was at FNX, literally, I had friends that were working at fast food who were making more than I was. I was making $6 an hour, you know? I paid my dues. But um, my dad had had colon cancer, he had surgery. And when I moved to Afternoons, I remember he was in the hospital and he was trying to recover and stuff between this other radio station and I had spilled into the newspapers and, you know, they were finding coded language to to make reference to me being black. So it was just, it got very, very nasty. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a sponge. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty tough, but, you know, my parents were like freaked out and. I'll never forget going to the hospital to see my dad, and my dad was like, because, you know, I was going out doing appearances, and my dad was like, do they have enough security for you? And I'm like, Dad, these, you know, these knuckleheads are just gonna get in my face and say something. Nobody's gonna, like, put hands on me. But, you know, that that really bothered me because, you know, if you have any dealings with cancer, stress is everything. Right. You know, and so it really got to him, and I was like, Dad, you know, That's I'm... True. I'm a, I mean, I was 50 pounds heavier then. I was like, I'm a big guy, you know? I mean, nobody knew that I was a complete, you know, marshmallow inside. I, You know, I, I'm loud and I can talk a good game. What? What? Step outside and we'll talk about it. <laughs> right. And the second they go outside and I'm inside, like.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it was, um see, I had, you know, I was there and I knew the battle, but I, now that you're telling the story, from your view, though, I had forgotten how kind of evil and nasty the whole thing had gotten. I got called the N-word so much, and
1: I couldn't even get angry at these kids, because I I, I knew they didn't even really know what they were saying. They would just call up, call up the station, you know, say it, and, like, hang up. Um, and really... You know, it was Opie and Anthony, who I think are incredibly talented, but they were their own worst enemy. You know, they, I, I, I've never seen anybody with with a bigger self-destruct mechanism than those guys. You know, they really were just... It was weird, because they believe their own legend, but at the end of the day, I think they don't have any idea how good they actually were. And, I, you know, when, when we finally sort of squashed the beef one day, um, I, we went out one day and we were drinking all day and we just sort of like yelled at each other and we kind of ended it all. And I just said to them, I was like, you guys, you don't get it. I mean, you're being groomed for everything. You know, you're being groomed to take over the mantle from Howard Stern. All you have to do is, you know, not, not be overshadowed by a uh, leaf blower. <laughs> right. You know, they, um, I don't know. They just didn't get it. And then um, I was at B C N about eight years, and during that time I was up. The reason I got to New York was I was up for afternoons at K Rock against, uh, I believe it was Chris Booker, who had been on the station for quite some time, and he also had a national profile. He'd been on MTV, and then he left MTV, and he was he was the um, uh, a, 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 a reporter for Entertainment Tonight and he was dating Linda Lopez, J-Lo's sister. This is during the whole Benefer thing. Yeah. So whenever there was a J-Lo or a Ben Affleck story and Ben Affleck, who I went to high school with, he got the exclusive. So he was everywhere. And so afternoons came down to he and I and I'm told that the program director, I mean, he had also been on uh, Howard's show a lot. And I was told, Howard went to the program director, said, ooh, you got to give Booker the job. And he called me, and he was like, yeah, man, i, mean, I got to go with Booker. And I was like, of course, I'd go with Booker over me. That's a no-brainer. And so, um, I want to say, the end of 2004, December, yes, December 31st, 2004, my contract was up, and I was on my way to work. And we'd had a new program director, who I'd kind of helped usher in, because when Oedipus was leaving, I knew a bunch of the... Uh, the candidates, and um, the general manager said to me, what do you think of this guy, what do you think of this guy? And I said, well, Dave Wellington, you know, he's he's killing in in (laughs) Vegas, he's the guy. You know, I didn't realize he was gonna come in and be like, okay, uh, let's see, what what can we lose? You. (laughs) And, um, um, so my contract was up December 31st, 2004, and, I was on my way to work and my agent called me and said, yeah, we got problems. And I said, uh, okay. said, yeah, they want to go in another direction. I was like, all right, well, I have a compass. You know, I'd, I'd never heard that term before. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so, um, I said, well, get me a meeting. And I had a meeting with him that day and the general manager. And I basically said, well, you know, I, I can go wherever you want to go. And they were like, well, we want to go in another direction. I was like, oh, I get another direction without me. Okay, I got it. And so, um... Again, and that was another thing. He ended up hiring a guy who I'm friends with for from his station in Vegas to do... I was only doing Afternoon Drive. He was hired to do Afternoon Drive and be the imaging director, basically, like, you know, produce all the interstitials that, talk, that sort of made the image of the radio station for probably half of what I was making, so I can't argue that. And then I don't know if you remember this, but Howard Stern and his... Um, cast of uh, oddballs Stuttering John and um, Crazy Cabby. Crazy Cabby, who was a Gulf War veteran who was shell-shocked. Complete character. Um, But he was on Howard's show all the time, but he was also doing overnights at the station. He and Stuttering John despised each other. They got into a fight. And Howard, being the master of um, marketing, decided to settle this beef in a boxing match. Sponsored by I think it was GoldenPalace.com. Purse was $25,000. Cabby wins the purse. Goes on the air and says yeah, I got $25,000. I'm not paying. I didn't pay any taxes on it. The IRS is listening. Oh, (laughs) jeez. And that's it. (laughs) So I'm sitting home one day. Again, it was like December 31st. Uh, I was trying to decide what I was going to do next. And I want to say early... January, the phone rang. It's the program director of XRK. And I swear to God, I'll never forget this. He says, hey dude, Cappy's going to jail and we could yeah, use some help. You wanna come down and do some shifts?
0: <laughs>
1: and I was like, Ugh. And that's how I got into K-Rock. That's how I got into uh, New York. And it's funny because I I'd, I'd also, um, I just bought my first house, so I thought, you know, well, I really want to do voiceover, so I bu- built this elaborate studio, home studio, and in 2004, that wasn't a thing. So I built this elaborate home studio, and I started to send my demos to agents here, and I got the attention of three, and the one I really wanted to go with were like, okay, well, you know like, Call us when you get to the, the city. And I was like, well, no, but I built a studio. Yeah, yeah, that's nice. Call us when you get to the city. And I was like, wow. So I started working. Uh, I flew down to New York on a Thursday, or I took the train. I did a an audition, 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. Thursday night, and I had just before I had my my uh, iPhone. I had my BlackBerry, and it. I basically used it as email and text because it wouldn't take calls or it would drop calls, and. You know I didn't even know people called me, so I'm walking around, and um, Friday afternoon because I had a bunch of friends here and. I get a message from the PD K-Rock, he says, hey man, I just listened to your demo, hey that was great, great, give me a call, we'll talk, I said, and I hadn't heard the message. Then the next message I get was um, Uh, his assistant, hey Nick, this is Bianca from K-Rock, I have your schedule next Saturday and Sunday 2 to 6 p.m., and I'm like, wait, what, I had no idea. So I started working part-time at K-Rock in New York, 2 to 6 every Saturday and Sunday, and... I would take the Amtrak down on Friday, check into a hotel, go out Friday night with my friends, get up Saturday, go to the station, do my thing, go out Saturday night, check out of my hotel on noon on Sunday, go up to K-Rock, which was on 57th and 6th, on the air from two to six, with my bag, jump on the uh, subway, get back down to uh, Penn Station at seven, and take the uh, Amtrak back down to uh, the Boston. Wow. And I did that from February to October, when I finally was just like, "All right, I'm, I'm just gonna move there." Yeah, and here I am with the mint, and you ain't ever leaving. I don't know. You know, I, I now that I've I've, I've left um, Sirius XM, the first two job offers I got were out of town, and you know, I mean, my my goal is kind of to stick around. I mean, I feel like if I'm here till 2005, that will be 20 years here. So I don't know if you get a set of steak knives or you're fired, like, you know, like playing Gary Glenn Rossi, exactly, yeah. an official pen, like an I Heart New York pen. <laughs> but, um, you know, I mean, if somebody says to me, here's, you know, $650,000, and even if you set the place ablaze, we can't fire you, you know, I, mom can't find you in Nebraska, here I come, you <laughs>
0: know. You love interviews. I'm sorry, she, she wants to say hi to everybody. <laughs> Mince the ambassador of Central Park. She
1: is. She, dude, I tell you, she, it's so funny. Like, literally, like, in my my building, everybody knows her name. Nobody knows, nor could they care less about my name. And she has this thing where she just wants to jump up on everybody. And she always jumps up on people's, just to say hello. And I'm like, no, 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 no. And they're always like, it's okay, it's okay. And I'm just waiting until the day. It's like, my $9,000 Balenciaga pants. (laughs) I'm going to have you both killed. (laughs) Right. Anyway, I'm sorry. You were saying.
0: So you've always enjoyed interviewing people. Who are some of your favorite interviews you've done in your career? Wow.
1: Um, well, that's the thing. A lot of them. You know, I will always be grateful to Sirius XM because although the concept of my channel that I went in for it was called Volume, it was a talk channel about music. And I remember my boss, who was my boss at VH1, had. Started it. He took me to lunch one day, and he says, I got, a, "I got a meeting with Sirius." I was like, "Oh, really?" He says, "What would you think about a, ta- a channel that talked about music but didn't play it?" I was like, "Dumbest idea I've ever heard." But then I said, "No, you know what? Actually, if you made it like sports talk for music dorks, that could work." So initially, we would just play like thirty-second snippets of songs to make reference. Um, I, you know, I had done a lot of really interesting interviews. Before I got to Sirius, because I was doing rock and alternative rock and classic rock radio. But
0: when I got to Sirius, they
1: really did allow me to live my, you know, pseudo Larry King uh, dream where I talked to everybody from Ron Howard to, you know, Ozzy Osbourne to, geez, I, I, Neil deGrasse Tyson three or four times. And my boss was funny, he would always say, when I wanted to book somebody, well, what's the the musical tie-in? I said, oh, don't worry, I'll find one. So, you know, I promoted whatever Neil deGrasse Tyson was talking about. Then I'd ask him about the science of music. he said, well, reverb, and he would just sit and go off on this screed about like what makes reverb. It was crazy. Um, One of my favorites was um, Ron Howard, who I was a huge fan of, of course and he came in to talk about his Pavarotti documentary. And again, you know, my, my channel was basically, it was a kind of rock-based, but you know, they wouldn't actually say it, but that's really what we kind of leaned toward. And at the end of the interview, I swear to God, he says, oh darn, Nick, I should've talked about Wu-Tang. And I looked at him, I was like, Wu-Tang, <laughs> you? Forgetting his partner's Brian Grazier. And he said, yeah, I, and there was two Wu-Tang series coming out, and I was like, is that you guys? And he said, yeah, that's my partner, and I forgot, Brian Grazier, who put the RZA from Wu-Tang in, in American uh, Gangster and a bunch of other things. And he was just like, yeah, and I'm sitting there going, I'm talking to Opie Taylor about the Wu-Tang
0: Clan. Right. That's insane. That's awesome.
1: Um, my favorite part was literally when, I mean, I don't yeah, want to sound like a jerk, but a when, example, like Huey Lewis, who I'm a huge fan of. I mean, I'm basically, like, I grew up, like, kind of a hip-hop punk rock kid pop music, but I love melody. So I love Huey Lewis. And he was a little leery about talking to us. You know, we he he needed us to send us send him our questions first because he's got his hearing issue. So I just made sure I sent him my questions but then I asked a bunch and I said that they were not in the list and I said, so is it my understanding so you your solo on USA for Africa, We Are the World, you got that because Prince didn't show up. And that was supposed to be Prince's line. And he slams his hand on the table and he goes, Nick, how do you know that? I'm like, I'm a fan! You know? Wow, That was my favorite thing. If if somebody said, how do you know that? I'm like, I'm a fan! Yeah. Because I don't think they knew. So, that and, you know, pretty much anybody, Band of the Moment X to, wow. My parent, my mom died when I was, when she, uh, in 2000, my dad died in 2002, so, I interviewed both Ingelbert Humperdinck, who was hilarious, and Johnny Mathis, Wow! who I, uh, you know, chances are, <laughs> <on. laughs> as I wear the silly grin. <laughs> and it was funny too, because I walked in and he's like, oh, you're cute. And I was like, all right, you know, I'll take it. <laughs> what I didn't know is, he's like in his 80s, he had this... Giant. I mean, I've been around a lot of rock stars, and they usually have, like, big black bodyguards. He had the biggest, blackest bodyguard I'd ever seen. The guy had to have been, like, seven feet tall, built like this. And he was, like, maybe 45. And his publicist pulled me aside. He goes, yeah, that's his husband. And I was like, well, don't worry about it. I wasn't going to, you know, I wasn't going to act on
0: the guy I thought, thinking I was cute. Right. <laughs> you know? Did you ever go through an interview and then after you were sort of debriefing on uh, it, go, I wish I didn't ask that question.
1: Uh, no, I mean, you know, I, I, I could always think of things that I wish I had asked, bad brains, respect. I always can think of things I wish I had asked. Um, it's been a long time since an interview really went bad. And if, it, I mean, if, it, if it's gone badly, I've just, there's tons and I've just been like, okay, you know what? Thanks for coming in, you know, and afterwards, I've just said, look, you know, I'm trying to help you sell your little project, you know. But generally speaking, no, I mean, I've insulted guests, you know, sort of lovingly. And they got it. So, like, I remember Ann Wilson punched me.
0: Like a a hard punch?
1: Well, like a sisterly punch, but it was pretty hard. Oh, wow. She's like, shut up, Nick. You know, and that's the kind of thing I love. But, I mean, honestly, I can't think of anything... I've I've regretted because again you know my thing is I've been very fortunate in that I've only had to talk to a couple of people that I didn't really want to you know I mean and and I'm not the type that the only reason why I might not want to talk to somebody is because I don't really feel like I can bring anything out of them that hasn't been you know oh sorry it hasn't (laughs) been you know Um, recycled a quajillion times? Um, That's a good question. I, I, uh... Honestly, no. You know, because again, you know, I'm not in it to make people feel bad. It's funny, I think when, um... When I was still in Boston, and people were like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah." he thinks he's Howard Stern, I think there were some people that were a little leery. You know? Actors in particular that were a little leery. I remember, um... Um, Anthony Michael Hall who, you know, I, mean, I grew up in the 80s so I was a huge fan and he was coming in to talk about um, this made-for-TV movie that he he played Bill Gates he did a great job and I remember my producer saying listen, Nick loves actors and Nick is a huge fan, you know and so I could tell he came in a little guarded but by the end, you know, he slapped at five and he went on he went on Howard Stern the next day and he goes, Yeah, I just want to send a shout-out to my boy Nikki the Pimp in Boston, you know. But, I mean, I can't say that I've ever been like, Oh, why did you ask that, you idiot? Um, there's, I mean, there's times when I thought, Oh, I could have worded that better.
0: Yeah, or maybe going at a different angle or something yeah. like that. But.
1: Well, that's my thing. I mean, I—I—I, I, I, one of my best friends... <coughs> excuse me, one of my best friends reminds me of... When I was still doing my, when I was still working at VH1, the first time I spoke to uh, Judas Priest, I asked them about, I asked Rob Halford about the um, the lawsuit, you know, where the kids got high and played, I think it was stained class backwards and swore they heard, you know, do it, do it. And obviously the do it trans- translated to get a gun and blow your head off. And I remember a friend of mine who had been working in radio for a long time said, he said, you know, I was amazed at how much he talked about that because I'm sure that when, when people ask, they probably say, yeah, man, that trial, that, that sucked, huh? And I just said to him, I said, you know, if I recall, I said to him, you know, with, with a band like yourselves who have such a, such a intimate relationship with your fans, especially here in America, what I said is I remember saying, did it change your perception of America at all when your music was essentially put on trial for these kids who did something crazy and weren't taking responsibility for it? And he opened right up. That, that I was a little leery about, because generally speaking, every once in a while, you know, yeah. publicists are say, like, don't talk about this, don't talk about that, don't talk about this. And you know, half the time I'm like, well, I'm not here to, like, make me feel bad anyway. Right. You know? Yeah. I do remember Peter Frampton. He was in a bad mood. And I asked his um, manager. I said, well, um, is there anything he doesn't... Because I always, I always say to artists, I'm like, anything you don't really want to talk about? Or if I know I'm getting into something touchy, I'll, I often say, and this is my trick, I say, look, and stop me if I'm getting too personal. And they never do. But I remember I said to Peter Frampton's manager, I said, so, is there anything he doesn't want to talk about? And he said, "Uh, his latest divorce, losing his hair, and the Sgt. Pepper movie. And I was like, wow, I wasn't gonna talk to him about his divorce, I wasn't gonna be, you know, a jerk and be like, hey, so what happened to the hair? You know? (laughs) I had my Frampton come to live, like, vinyl, I'm like, who's this guy, you know? And I did want to talk about the Sgt. Pepper movie, because I was so fascinated, but he's very touchy, so... Wow. And he was in a bad mood. He was, um, because it was VH1. I'll never forget. It's one of the first interviews I did. Hey, up. And my uh, engineer is behind the camera, and I'm talking to him. And, you know, I'm sitting there, and I'll never forget Peter Frampton yells at my engineer, Ed. Will you stop moving? You're moving around. I'm trying to ask. I'm trying to pay attention. You You, ask your question again, and I was like, "Uh, uh, I uh." See, that was the first year of the show. Had that happened in the second year, that would have gone completely differently. I would have been like, "Bro, can you hear yourself?"
0: (laughs) That's so great. Can you can you hear yourself? You can't make
1: this up. No. Oh man. And it bummed me out because I loved the guy. I loved the guy, and I was just like, "Oh, come on, man." But again, I also get. You know, we all have bad days, and it's funny because. One thing that I've noticed that a lot of personalities or radio or TV people don't realize is, um, this is work for them. You know, I remember when we first started, you know, my talk channel about music volume, my boss said, oh, this could be great because, you know, artists are gonna really wanna talk. You know, they don't really get to talk on music radio. And I'm like, yeah, but, you know, when they're doing interviews, they're promoting something. So it's work. So now you're saying, oh, well, they could talk for an hour if they want, I'm like, oh, so that's like saying, and, You know, you can, you can work overtime for no extra money, right? You know, and I don't think people think about that. But, you know, if hopefully, if you're doing justice by somebody, um, when you're told, all right, you have 20 minutes, you know, they don't, they're not looking at their watch. It was I was at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in November, and again, I grew up a huge fan of the Commodores. Lionel Richie solo, not so much, but I respect what he's done. And when Lionel Richie got in, um, it was myself and two other people from the channel. We were doing mostly tandem interviews, but you know, my, my co-workers knew that I was a huge fan, and I was literally told, two minutes. And I was like, uh, uh okay. And, you know, he was beyond... Um, amenable. I asked him one song about one question about going solo, then I said to him, Tell me what you remember about the night Bob Marley and the Wailers opened for the Commodores in Madison Square Garden. And he looked at me, he goes, How do you know about that? I'm like, I'm a fan That's great. And you know, he just said, he said, man, I don't even remember very much because Bob invited me down to his dressing room and stupidly I went down there and the smoke I couldn't even tell you about the show after that. So it's <laughs> great. So you know, that's it. I mean, and and I find half the time artists don't mind if they feel like you're being respectful and know who they are. It's just their handlers that are like, don't ask this, don't ask this, don't ask this. Avril Lavigne, don't ask anything about her Lyme disease. She just released an album written entirely about her Lyme disease. You know, and she brought it up, and I was just like, all right, we'll go with it. And I look up and I see her, her publicist in in the hall, like you know, doing this, like
0: yeah. doing the slash, and I'm like, she's fine what are you talking about? Yeah. So, weird. So, let's close with crystal balling the future for you. It's a couple years from now. Where do you want to be? What do you want to be doing? You
1: know, that's my problem. I don't really know because I, I, I feel like I want to do something that's going to um, allow me to flex the few muscles I have. Because the thing is, you know, I'm, I'm, I had a long talk with somebody. Uh, I was actually on a panel with somebody about imposter syndrome, and I suffer from that really, really badly. i think I think when I'm at my best, I might not be the best, but I think there's really not anybody else around that sounds like me, you know, whether it be in terms of just turn a phrase when Talking about music, or actually talking to somebody, or, or asking somebody—you know—an interview question or whatever, or you know, just as I say, like I'm my my good friend Erin O'Malley, who's in Boston still. She's been there like 22 years. On mix 104.1, she said to me, she says, "You're the best interview I've ever seen." I was like, "No," I'm not. she said, "No, you are." And and I said, why? She Um, said, well, because people don't even realize it's an interview. I said, well, that's Uh, the thing. I just want to have conversations with people. You know, I just Um, want to talk to people. I mean, I hate, you know, well, it says here in your bio that, you know, I just, I, 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 as cliche as it sounds, I find people fascinating. I got to tell you, the more I hang out with my dog, the less I like people. But... Amen to that. um, I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm I'm getting a little long in the tooth for TV, but... Okay, Who knows? Yeah. Who knows like, what? You know, uh, I really don't know. As I say, I just I just left my job after seven years. I do a lot of voiceover. I'd like to do more of that. I just feel like there's 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 ways to connect. Um, that I don't I don't even know if the mainstream has really embraced them yet. I mean, I'm again everybody and their grandmother has a podcast now, so I don't know if I'm looking forward to that. But are you referring to me as your grandmother? <laughs> My grandmother was never so cool. My grandmother never ran a rock station. <laughs> my grandma—I remember when my grand, when I when I got my uh, my left ear pierced, my grandmother was like, "What are you, some kind of sissy?" And I had like long hair, like I was trying to be Prince on a bad day, and you know, it was long and straight. And I remember I came in off of the uh, out of the rain, and it sort of blew it around. She said, "The hair? The, the wind do that to your hair?" I'm like, "Yeah, pretty much." It's <laughs> called punk grandma.
0: Ah, yeah, you look like a punk, all right. Mm. Well, I've enjoyed this so much. I got to meet oh. Mint. I got to see you. Oh, We did yeah, this man. on uh, last-minute notice, which is even uh, more fun. And uh, I didn't ex- I needed an
1: excuse to drag the Mint
0: out and basically, like, pontificate it
1: by myself a lot.
0: <laughs> I loved it. I loved every bit of
1: it. Because I'm sure she's sick of hearing She's like, will you go back to work? I'm so sick of hearing about your little stories. I'm so sick of hearing about you uh, getting drunk and making out with... Uh, Band of the moment, excellent or whatever. Uh,
0: I loved every second of it. Thanks. Oh, you yeah. as well, man. I Thanks. loved it. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks for taking a walk.
1: Don't be silly. I loved it. I loved it. I don't get to see this uh, this side of Central Park usually. I'm usually further up. This is the uh, this is the uh, the nicer um, touristy, rich side. You want you want a drink? Schmeppermint? Yeah, come and get a drink.
0: Taking a walk with Buzz is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.